0: Welcome to Constitutionally Speaking, a podcast about the United States Constitution, early American history, and political philosophy. My name is Jay Koss, and with me is my co-host and co-conspirator, Luke Thompson. And this week is the final installation in our little series about the history of Congress, the historical evolution of Congress. This is part of a larger series we're doing on Congress. We thought we'd open up by talking about the Constitutional Congress and how Congress has evolved. And in our last episode, we got as far as Congress in the 1980s and up to the 1994 Republican Revolution, which really was, in many respects, a revolution. And, you know, there have been a lot of major electoral shockwaves that have run through the country on midterms. Those are always sort of fun. You know, you see a big change in the political dynamics happening in Congress in midterms. You know, we had one in 2018 when the Democrats took control. We had one in 2010 with the Republicans, 2006 uh, with the Democrats. But, you know, in retrospect, I think the 1994 Republican uh, takeover of Congress ends up standing out for a number of reasons. And I think it it heralds several themes that are going to continue on through the next couple of generations, frankly, because that's what we're talking about now. It's been more than a quarter century. I mean, I think probably we have more than a few listeners, Luke, who were not even alive when uh, the Republicans took control of Congress in 1994. Uh, The historical background here is important to bear in mind, which is that the, the Republicans in the House of Representatives, the last time the party had won a majority was all the way back in 1952. When they rode Eisenhower's coattails. Back in 1952 is a very, very different party. It was still basically the same party that it had been ever since the Civil War. If you look at the Republican results that year, you just basically see them as the party of the North. Um, and then, you know, as time goes on, we begin to see the outlines of the parties increasingly having left-right divisions, but the Democrats having not just Northern liberals, but also Southern conservatives. So it's really too much for the Republicans to overcome. But as the 70s and 80s roll on, you see Southern conservatives moving into the Republican party increasingly. And we talked about this in the last episode of the Voting Rights Act Amendments in 81 facilitating that process through what is known as bleaching of congressional districts, where districts that maybe were 70 percent white and 30 percent black, the federal government puts a mandate on the states that if they can draw minority majority districts, they have to. So those districts go from being 70, 30 to, you know, maybe 85, 15. And that hurts Democratic chances in the South because the black vote, especially in the South, is the anchor of the Democratic coalition. So the Republicans come in in 1994, and, you know, it's there's a lot of interesting things about this election. So first one, it's just its historic nature. Also, very few people saw it coming. I think Michael Barone was probably the only one of the analysts at the time who said, no, this could actually be, this could be a major earthquake. So people were surprised. And another thing, you know, I'm hesitant to talk about realignments in American politics because I think it's an underdefined concept. And I think there's a kind of temptation of triumphalism after your side wins a big election, you wanna call it a realignment, which is to say, you know, this is gonna last for a long time. But there there are realigning aspects to the 1994 victory, particularly in the South. You see a realignment in the South in the sense that before 1994, Democrats won a majority of the House vote not just in the 11 states of the old Confederacy, but in the broader South as defined by the Census Bureau. But since 1994, the Republicans have won that majority. Um, so that is that is a fundamental change. But you also see, moving forward, you see, though, the Republican share of the vote in the North decline slowly but surely, um, and sometimes more quickly than slowly. I mean, as late as 2006- for instance, the Republicans had three House seats in Connecticut. Now they have none, and as far as I know, they have no chances of winning any. Likewise, you see, Republican position in, say, the suburbs of both New York City and Philadelphia have degraded pretty substantially, especially in you know the the suburbs around New York City. So there have been trade offs there, and so there and you know, all of these processes had been in place to some extent before 1994, but 1994 is really a pivotal moment in which you see a kind of shift that things move and they don't, and they don't move back. As a consequence, I think it's important to acknowledge that the political tenor of 1994 has had, had a stickiness. And I, and I would suggest a couple ways. Probably one of the biggest is that by realigning Congress Along more ideological lines, the presidency already having been pretty well defined in ideological terms, what you get is a lot more conflict between Congress and the presidency than you had previously. Now, I don't want to overstate that because you had, you know, say with Iran Contra and especially with Watergate and Lyndon Johnson's so called credibility gap, you had. Um, conflicts between congress and the presidency but i I think that since 1994 we've seen that happen um, much more regularly than we had in the past and we can go into that and i I also think the increased partisanship in congress again i'm just going to throw out these ideas in general outline and we can talk about them in more detail i think another thing that you see is a consequence of this increased um, ideological division between the two parties you see more polarization within congress between democrats and republicans and that i think has had a tendency to break down the typical what we would call the normal regular order of congress where legislation is drafted in committees and oftentimes to be frank in a fairly collaborative process between the two parties and i think You know, in many respects, that process has broken down so thoroughly that it it actually might be time to begin, you know, revising uh, our textbooks about Congress. Final thing I'll mention as well about 1994 that sort of shows maybe points forward is I, I think that in a lot of respects, Newt Gingrich represents the kind of, you know, Maybe a celebrity congressman or maybe like he was kind of Instagram famous before Instagram was a thing. Um, Gingrich was, you know, takes over as he as the House. He's by this point, he's a House minority leader, Um, but he had sort of risen through the ranks as an outsider. Yeah, not really in the normal kind of channel. If if you look at a guy like Gingrich, he looks very different than what previous Republican leaders would look like, say Jerry Ford or Bob Michael. But Gingrich uses C-SPAN to enormous effect. And Gingrich uses the uh, venue of C-SPAN being created in the 1980s. And at, at night you can do these like one minute speeches to an empty chamber, but televised on C-SPAN. And Gingrich used these to enormous effect to basically bring about the resignation of House Speaker Jim Wright. And so he really ends up kind of being a very, in many respects, incendiary character. And I think that Gingrich's success pointed the way to um, a more bombastic style of congressional politicking, especially with this sort of idea of members of Congress realizing that, you know, some of them have unique capacity through their personality or their biography or whatever, to use the media to make a name for themselves that really is independent of the amount of weight that they actually pull in Congress. And I think Gingrich really was in many respects a trendsetter in that way. I don't, I, I don't think if he were listening to this, I don't think he'd want to hear that he's the, you know, the godfather of AOC. But in a lot
1: of respects, I think you could argue that he was. I'm, I'm not so sure he'd be against that. Um, <laughs> he's no, I so yeah, you're right. Gingrich, Gingrich is a personality is, is a fascinating character. Um, you know, he wins in a Georgia district uh, that is coming the Republicans way. He runs three times before he's elected. He's on the cusp of becoming a, a perennial candidate. And he wins his third election. Um, he's a college professor. Uh, he's not originally from Georgia, but um, that's, you know, so he's, he's, he isn't this sort of Republican version of the new South. And as Jay says, he comes into Congress and, you know, the Congress that exists is, um, one where you have, I, I think what we would say is the dominant ethos is institutional pluralism in Congress. And, and the reason for that is that the Democratic Party is so big in the House that it can't, it seemingly can't be dislodged. But it's also so diverse internally that it seemingly can't function. And so within the institution of the House of Representatives, the task of both leadership and individual members is to exploit the structures of institutional pluralism, most explicitly the committee system, but also, you know, ideological coalitions to advance legislation. That legislation, generally speaking, seeks to do three things in most cases one is to sort of crudely bring home the bacon to individual districts that's facilitated by a system of, of easy spending that we'll get to in a second um, second to sort of say engage in policy entrepreneurship or ideological satisfaction um, on with more perhaps of a national or statewide view you know many members of Congress are ambitious to hold statewide office either as governors senators or beyond and and so there's there are you know, bigger things on the horizon and people looking to to achieve those bigger things are, are trying to pass bigger bills. And then, of course, there's the third, which is, um, you know, to vent the splenetic uh, bigotries of one's particular district, i.e. to to engage in position taking, um, you know, and, and that can run the gamut from, say, you know, renaming a bridge, recognizing a particular ethnicity's historic contribution to the United States, or, you know, a a bill on a hot button issue. But these are not things that are going to typically be instantiated in legislation, or even if they are, they're not going to be, you know, highly redistributive or change the way people live, but they are statement activities. And it's in that third arena where I think Gingrich's innovations are so important. Um, I'm going to take a step back to Watergate, Um, And and I'm not going to dwell there very long, but I want to move forward. Um, During the mention of um, framework statutes, we talked about ways in which Congress tried to reset the agenda and the balance between the different parts of the government. Um, And we talked about how some of those uh, framework statutes, which were designed to put uh, Congress and the executive branch in a more collaborative mode, in fact, exacerbated and accelerated a much more conflictual relationship and ultimately a much more polarized and partisan relationship. Between and within the branches, depending on the the allocation of majorities. Uh, But one of those, one critical piece of legislation that we didn't touch on because, you know, we figured we're going to get to it now is the, is the, um, is the FICA, Uh, the federal, right? Uh, Um, Yeah, yeah well, and and what remains of it. So, so in 1974, um, Congress jams through the Federal Elections Campaign Act, and and its goal is to kind of convert. convert American elections into a much less sort of bag of cash affair. Um, And and in fairness, prior to it, there had been a lot of of shady stuff going on in terms of the financing of political campaigns in the United States. Um, However, I think it only lasts for a few years uh, because um, the Supreme Court prudently, I think, in 76, two years later, strikes down a case called Buckley v. Vallejo, a bunch of limits that had been imposed on how much campaigns could spend. Um, uh, They they retained um, restrictions on spending in the event that uh, candidates accepted public financing, which became available. Uh, They upheld the Federal Elections Commission, which is A bit of a dog's breakfast of an institution, but continues to exist today. Uh, And they kept certain constraints within the FECA, but um, they said any uh, limits on spending are unconstitutional violations of free speech. You cannot say, you know, uh, John Doe and Jane Doe are starting at the same point. They have the same budget. Um, The the Supreme Court did this in part because they rightly read these restrictions on spending as uh, in incumbent insurance mechanisms, means by which they could retrench individual incumbents. and so, But um, by preserving limits on what could be raised, uh, what the court effectively did was empower the parties at the expense of individual members, even over and above incumbents. Um, specifically, parties were allowed to collect unlimited money that they could then spend directly in districts on what was vaguely called party building activity. Um, I won't get bogged down in in the details, but suffice to say, unlike today where individual, um, you know, party leaders in the different uh, chambers of Congress sit on top of very well funded super PACs and they raise a bunch of money themselves. And so, do have some campaign finance control, in the era between 1976 and 2002, your Senate Majority Leader, your Senate Minority Leader, your Speaker of the House, and your uh, your House Minority Leader literally, more or less literally controlled the purse entirely. And if you didn't want to do what they said, you either had to be sure you were going to win without a whole lot of money, or you had to be like Jesse Helms and essentially invent direct mail fundraising as an alternative mechanism to raise money. Now, what this period of time does, and this is what leads up into the 1990s, is it it creates a scenario in which the middle ground, that is the majority seekers, the entities that want to make majorities, um, within the context of institutional pluralism that I mentioned earlier, uh, they hold the whip hand. And they're bolstered, especially in the House on the Democratic side, by seniority rules that that preserve Democratic members who are who are long tenured in their committees, et cetera. And what that means is that if you start to color outside the lines on either party's preferences, there are some pretty hard blocks. Um, what that leads to, as a practical matter, is a fairly steady expansion of government spending, with a handful of you know spikes around the Reagan defense budget, et cetera. Um, a general but Uh, uh, staged embrace of free trade, um, and, you know, a willingness to be more confrontational with the Soviet Union in terms of defense spending, but not commitments abroad. Um, uh, The obvious exception being Kuwait, which was by no means a sure thing when George H.W. Bush decided to pursue uh, legislative authorization to go to war in Iraq the first time. Um, And there are a lot of people that are pretty happy with this, and there are a lot of people that are really unhappy with it. the people who are happy with it tend to be the legislative leaders. They tend to be moderates who also are um, supported by a kind of um, slavishly conventional media that's dominated still by three major networks. Cable is sort of emerging, but even then it's nothing like what we see today. It's still absolutely the kid brother of, of network television and the uh, you know national and regional newspapers, which possess a kind of homophily in in their worldview thanks to the professionalization of journalism schools in the middle part of the 20th century uh that that means that like the mainstream media is both large powerful seemingly omnipresent and highly homogenous and in line with this washington consensus right um who's on the outs with it uh budget hawks tend to be on the out although they can generally be reconciled um you know uh, i would say your sort of your your labor unions begin to get pretty frustrated with it and individually ambitious federal office holders chafe against this so two of these people who hate being told what to do by their party leaders one an ideological liberal and the other a um highly personalistic maverick i mean i'm speaking here of course of russ Feingold <laughs> and and john McCain – um right. Uh, get together and take up a proposal initially floated in the uh, in the House um, by a by a couple of members who sort of fit in that squishy moderate mold. Um, uh, Chris Shays and uh, and um, uh, uh, Martin Mehan, sorry. And I just so, interject here, real quick, yeah, of We should
0: probably sure. point out. I, I I don't want to interrupt your train of thought, but with regard to McCain's motiv- motivations, I think it's important to remember that in the early 90s, he gets pinged. He gets his reputation gets dinged with the Keating by his mm-hmm. association with, with the Keating, the Keating five, five scandal. Yeah. He's one of the Keating Five. I think yeah. is he one of the five? He is. I think right? he's.
1: I think he's the Keating sixth. Okay. I don't, yeah. So, but but let me. So yeah, let me get to that because this is yeah. Around, go ahead. Right. So so. What happens is there's this, so so Meehan is a Democrat from uh, from Massachusetts, and Shays is a Republican from Connecticut. Um, you know, Meehan is an old I, Irish ethnic white Catholic uh, Democrat of the New Deal variety, and, and Shays um, is not himself a perfect exemplar of this, but represents the Connecticut Gold Coast and that sort of like flinty, Yankee, waspy version of the Republican Party that's more or less dead today. Um and the two of them sort of uh recognize that within their constituencies, there's both a kind of blue-collar disdain for the for the the self-dealing and the, the inside game that's going on in Washington, and a, a kind of um I don't know, aristocratic, bourgeois, anti-political dislike of the grubbiness of politics, the sort of good government goo-goo types, Um, and that both of their constituencies are, are really animated by a desire for reform. And this desire for reform comes from both the policy dissatisfactions that I just mentioned, but also the fact that there's a lot of friggin' corruption around, because you have giant you know, floods of corporate and union and special interest money just sitting in campaign finance coffers controlled by the party committees, which are themselves controlled by the state, by the party leaders, and a handful of extremely well-paid television ad makers in each party, and people are getting paid off all the time. Um, Additional, you know, there you have the Keating 5 scandal, uh, you have... uh, you, you know you have the F, you have fbi agents dressing up like saudi princes and and trying to bribe congressmen on a yacht um there's just a lot of money running around they nailed Washington. john murtha well they almost nailed john murtha yeah them. nobody ever
0: nailed john yeah, no you know, and then you also have more recently luke you have clinton and gore in the late 90s yeah you have you regime. have china
1: you have china gate which which makes clinton really susceptible to this because some some uh some business people associated with the Chinese Communist Party stick about a million dollars in the DNC. And so, so Clinton is vulnerable on this. He's also sort of seen as ethically loose and compromised for very good reasons, as we know. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's, there emerges this desire to get money out of politics. Now, I can go on at length about why that was an asinine and naive desire. Um, but it, it begins to become, ironically, the consensus of this sort of centrist establishment that they ought to get money out of politics, even though it's precisely the structure of money in politics that is keeping this centrist establishment in place. And when things begin to really blow up, is not uh, in, in, in the permission structure that makes this happen, is not you know, the early 1990s, it's not even the, it's not even the late 1980s or Abscam or the Keating Five or these big campaign finance or bribery scandals. What it is, is it's the Gingrich Revolution. Because for the first time, you have uh, a Republican majority in the House, something that was unthinkable 10 years previously. And all of a sudden, You're not just looking at internal institutional pluralism within the House between more or less three parties, right, conservative Democrats, liberal Democrats, and Republicans. You now have Republicans in a majority, which means they're going to legislate. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, when they legislate, they begin to shed members. Specifically, they start to shed the very kind of Yankee Republicans like Shays, who now, as Jay mentioned, are completely extinct um, as a practical matter. What happens is uh, you know, that, that, that creates conflict within the Republican Party, but it also creates conflict within the House. And the establishment begins to look at, um, at campaign finance reform and sort of putting uh, a lid back on money in politics as a mechanism of self-preservation. And and so you get this really bizarre subset of people who really seize on this. As Jay mentioned, McCain has vulnerabilities around the Keating Five, where he's associated with this massive, felonious um, federal bribery scandal. Um, and he embraces it, but he also embraces it because you know McCain in the 1990s, like there's a reason. Like Pat Buchanan invites him to his national conference. He's regarded as a populist figure. Like we see him now as much more of a centrist and a moderate going into the year 2000. You know McCain is in the legacy of Barry, in, in the tradition of Barry Goldwater in that he's very skeptical of the Republican Party. He uh, he says a lot of bad things about the Republican Party, uh, but he 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 is also viewed as as quite conservative um you know certainly it was very- actually
0: considered for bob dole's vice presidential nominee in 96
1: that's right to balance out yeah. bob dole who was balance bob as, dole, as yeah. two establishment right so yeah. so there was yeah. this and, so- and
0: mccain would be more conservative and he went ended up going with jack kemp to sort of inject some pizzazz yeah, learning they- unfortunately that the vice presidential job is not to inject pizzazz but yeah,
1: or, or to throw issue. toy footballs, as it turned out. Either. Right, um, yeah. And, and also, <laughs> right. I mean, Dole knew he was losing ground in the North, too. And so, yeah. so there was a sense that, like, Kemp could probably be helpful. I actually had with Bob Dole and Jack Kemp one time in the early 2000s. But um, so the this was right before Kemp died, actually. Uh, anyway, so what happens is all of this coalesces into the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, where you have Russ Feingold, who's an ideological liberal and hates being told that he can't vote straight down the line of the international workers of the world and, uh, by by comparatively moderate pro-corporate Democrats who run the party in Congress. And you have John McCain, who doesn't like being told that he can do anything by anybody and also has some you know, reputational vulnerability on this and wants to run for president. And these guys get together, and they pick up Shays Mean and they turn it into McCain-Feingold, or formerly known as the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, or BICRA. Um, they're able to do this in part because Gingrich has scared the daylights out of uh, the establishment from 1994 to 1998, um, or really to, to the end to 1999. Um, you know, culminating in this impeachment of Bill Clinton, uh, a real loss of of, of trust um, already waning, but a real loss of trust in in the Washington establishment, uh, increasing polarization, and and you also have you know tom delay hasn't been caught yet but you have a lot of things going on that, that people people are generally aware that there's shady behavior going on and and i don't just mean that the president's you know uh, appalling yeah, you know, unethical personal conduct i mean in terms of money intersecting with power intersecting with people in the in the pursuit of and holding a formal office um so you know gingrich comes in with the uh with the Republican Revolution, with the contract with America really shakes things up because the contract with America is very, very populist in its disposition it 's actually open to a lot of these reform ideas as well, right I mean they, they want to shut down the congressional bank, they want to do all these other kinds of, of clean you know throw the bums out, drain the swamp type things, and the establishment realizes that they can they can protect themselves by draining the swamp, and what instead they do is they, they, they set the the course for their own annihilation.
0: Yeah, they really do. Um, a couple thoughts for you about this, too, yeah. just to clarify with respect to, you know, the sort of money that was allowed under the Federal Elections Campaign Act was known as soft money. Um, and soft money could be used for anything that could be used and defined as party building activities could be identified as soft money um and what you see through the 1980s is into the 1990s is that soft money kind of takes root in the late 70s and then through the 80s and into the 90s they become the parties become aware of just how much money they can shove into politics through soft money which is which is unregulated in two ways the first one is that there's no regulations on how much you spend, as long as it's for party-building activities, and also it's unregulated for how much um, you receive. So, for instance, in 1996, Seagrams of all the corporations actually contributes like a million dollars to the Democratic National Convention, right? And 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 Bill Clinton kind of pushes soft money to its outer limits where he would actually run um, campaign commercials in all-but-name where he would talk about how the Democrats are standing up for the people and the Republicans. And he'd have these pictures of Bob Dole and Newt Gingrich in black and white. Clinton would be featured, Sonny in the Oval Office smiling. And the ad doesn't say, vote for Bill Clinton. And it might say something like, call your congressman and tell him to stand with the president, something like that. That would be considered a soft money expenditure. And through the 90s, this these, this money gets worse and worse and worse and worse in the sense of um, more and more money is being used in this way. And the Clintons, I think there's a fundamental kind of break in the, in the late 90s, which is that of the many, many scandals The Clintons are involved in during their time in the White House, and frankly, even to the very end, like with the Mark Rich pardon. One of the scandals in which they're involved is the aggressive, even offensive way in which they would raise soft money. So, for instance, Clinton would allow high level donors to the DNC to sleep in the Lincoln bedroom, for instance. Al Gore was accused of having called you know, basically calling people from government offices and things like this. And is so you Google the phrase, no controlling legal authority, that's where you'll see that. And Gore himself was entangled, I think, through some Buddhist monastery, which had been operating potentially as a front for China, getting money in. So so the, the regime has, the campaign finance regime has this stank to it by the late 1990s. And a, a justifiable
1: gold. and well-deserved stink. It's yeah, like a, a just
0: yeah. that's right. Now, now to be clear, Luke and I are both generally fans of soft money or some sensible regime in which the political parties are the dominant actors in financing of campaigns. Which, for all of its excesses, soft money did facilitate that. But what happens in and I would I, let me add another point here is that uh, today we see what what are known as super PACs spend lots of money on what are known as independent expenditures where um, the candidate and the super PAC don't coordinate with each other. Those are actually legal um, under, under FICA. So you see some Independent expenditures in the 1990s, but not that much because soft money is such a much more efficient way. It's a way to get a bigger bang for your buck because you can co- you can use the party as a kind of central clearinghouse to coordinate all the various campaigns in a state. I mean, a lot of it just makes a a lot of sense to have the state parties ultimately get a big check from the national party because they're the magnet for the money. They, They write a big check to the state party, and then the state party spends the money in ways to maximize the chances of the whole ticket, all right? Independent expenditures, which would be just for one candidate over another, not as efficient, but they were legal. And what happens, though, and this is this is important, is that McCain-Feingold shuts down soft money and it also shuts down independent expenditures. So it is a very aggressive law. That, I mean, as it was written, I think McCain-Feingold might have actually cut money out of politics or at least the as we know it. The problem is, is that as it was written, it was unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court sort of revisits that original idea um, that it had in Buckley, which was, you know, that you can't, you can't cap somebody's, you can't cap how much a candidate spends for office, because that's a limitation of his or her right to free speech. And the Supreme Court in the early 2000s, the Rehnquist Court says, well, if you can't cap a candidate spending, you can't cap an individual's ability to spend either. So if an individual like somebody who's a billionaire wants to spend all their money trying to convince somebody to vote for one person over another, he's free to do that under the First Amendment. And so this is where you get what are known as independent expenditures. And it, you know, it's just like with soft money. is that experimentation, cycle after cycle, the two parties watch what the others do. And you get this explosion of this independent money that's just sort of floating out there. And the reason this makes has such an impact on politics is exactly the reason Luke suggested, which is that during the FICA era, which goes from 1974, when the amendments were put in place, 1974 until 2002, the parties emerged as the main organs of campaign finance and so to be a successful candidate you have to work through the parties now in the late 1990s as the republican party is moving to the right you're still going to see conflict and you see you know a lot of you know kind of showdown moments you know the government shuts down in 1995 as clinton and the democrats clinton and the republicans bicker over controlling entitlements Mm and and deficit spending and things like that. But it's really after that, that you begin to see more and more members of Congress act in a way that runs so contrary to the old ethos of, you know, collaboration and consensus and this kind of mushy, but basically inoffensive establishment, moderate liberalism, right? Moderate social welfare state, free trade, low tax regime, and aggressive foreign policy. I mean, that's basically both parties is where they are, right? And you can see this, by the way, it, it's still evident. Nope, I don't, I'm not sure anybody advocated this as well as like George Bush and Bill Clinton, If George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. If you look at Bill Clinton from the time that he, so Bill Clinton from 1996 until George Bush in like 2003. What do they do together? They both cut taxes. Uh, They, you know, Clinton reforms welfare. George W. Bush expands Medicare. They both embrace, you know,
1: an aggressive- Free free trade deals. Free trade deals. Free
0: trade deals, both engage in free trade deals and an interventionist Um, foreign policy. And I I
1: would say immigration
0: liberalization too. Yeah, immigration liberalization. So that would be- sort of regime that, it, I mean, there's an incredible amount of continuity between Clinton's second term, not Clinton's first term. Clinton's first term, when he gets in, is much more left-wing. And the second half of his first term is spent with a lot of conflict with the Republicans. Yeah. The actually- term... It-
1: this this is a good this is a good point to jump in here real quick though jay because what happens is clinton comes in he runs even though he's a minority president with like 50 42% of the vote was it he runs as a left wing you know president for the first two years he's the first yes. baby boomer president you know he's just the the greatest generations out the baby boomers are back or sorry in, you know, he runs as a left-wing president on reforming healthcare, on gays in the military, on all of these different things. And um, he gets smacked by Gingrich, right? So you have this kind of new liberalism on the march after, you know, 12 years in in the outer wilderness during the Reagan and and first four Bush years, but the Cold War is over. And now it's like the, the moment of boomer liberalism, like ascendant. And yet then two years later, this populist conservative Re- rejection of Clinton shows up in the form of Gingrich and the contract with America. And, and what winds up happening is that then degenerates into the impeachment of Clinton, which makes everybody uncomfortable, and sort of the establishment strikes back, right? In, yeah, that's in right. In the year 2000. And, and both, you know, Clintonian liberalism turns into triangulation. And, um, you know, Gingrich's populism is repudiated by the George Bush, by George W. George Bush. Bush repu- I mean, that's what big government conservative,
0: what conservatism was. That's, yeah, exactly. and, it, it, and in many respects, you can see Gingrich's conservatism as being tried to, you know, Reagan in the eighties sort of had a three. And we talked about this in the last episode reagan there were three prongs to reaganite conservatism one was aggressive national defense low taxes and reductions if not in the actual amount of social welfare spending then bending the curve down in the future and reagan tries at early in his presidency on the third one he's unsuccessful that's really what triggers the conflict between gingrich the republicans and clinton is that republicans want to rein in social security um and you know for, and social security and then also medicare
1: right correct correct and and there's very little appetite for that initially and right. um what winds up happening of course is the um what winds up happening is that like bush running in 1999 against you know Gingrich, functionally against Gingrich as a compassionate conservative, yep. nonetheless retains that sort of that's that's kind of the the way he tries to incorporate the populist energy of of the 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 contract with America moment is he says, look, like we're going to add Medicare Part D, right, which is a massive expansion of entitlements." Yep. Uh, for baby boomers specifically, and and to some extent, the greatest generation, but obviously forward-looking baby boomers. But we're going to offset that by taking seriously the desire to reform social security, I'm just going to punt that into my second term. Right. Right. Of course, when W tries that, it just, I mean, it goes. It
0: just. Yeah. And by the way, it's really something because Gingrich and Clinton had actually had a kind of gentleman's agreement about social security reform along those lines prior to the impeachment. Right. So the, the ultimate point here is that Gingrich ends up kind of being in some respects in, in the second term, in the, you know, kind of being tamed in the second term a little bit less populist. Um,
1: well, the Me- the Mexican debt, I- the Mexican debt crisis forces that on them a lot. Like um, okay. Ernesto Zedillo becomes president. And um, after the assassination of the leading candidate, due to some arcane Mexican laws, the only person legally eligible to run for president of the pre is the campaign manager of the guy who's just been murdered. Um, by, by a crazy person. It wasn't anything like, it was just a random assassination. But anyway, so this American trained PhD economist named Ernesto Zadillo becomes the president of Mexico and immediately begins undertaking elaborate political reforms to create a multi-party competitive democracy. But what he discovers is that the country is a basket case and the bottom is about to drop out of the currency and they're about to hit hyperinflation. So Zadillo calls Bill Clinton and says, the Mexican economy is about to, crater clinton is smart enough politically to know that like while he wants immigration liberalization if he's going to get that he can't have a basket case mexican economy because that will lead both to floods of human beings and and also it'll be harder to legitimate both nafta and you know normalizing and and expanding immigration uh, from from mexico into the united states and so he calls up gingrich and gets gingrich on the phone and they actually i think they wind up meeting in the basement of the white house and this is in the middle of it's it's in the middle of the impeachment They just sit there, like, overnight, and they're on the phone and stuff, but they wind up finding the circulating currency stabilization fund designed to protect the dollar, and they use that to bail out the peso, even in the middle of all of this. So, yeah, like, Gingrich is kind of brought brought to the heel, but he's also, and I I think this is to his infinite credit, like, even in the midst of all of this, and and to Clinton's credit, too, right, like, they, they govern like there's right. a crisis and they govern and Gingrich right. brings his people along at no small political cost to himself. And, right. and Clinton brings his people along and like they get it done.
0: Yeah. And I think after, you know, after, I mean, you don't want to pin everything on Bikram. Uh, I think Bicker probably had the effect of exacerbating the ideological differences that were already well-developed within the democratic and Republican coalitions. But what BICRA does, I think, more than anything, is give members of Congress, maybe the better way to put it, it removes from them an incentive to compromise. Because compromising and legislating and productive activity would be the sorts of things you do to keep the party establishment happy. You don't want to buck the party. You want to behave for the party and members are going to, to go along to get along because they need to finance their campaigns.
1: Well, so, now, the, so, there, so there are two parts to it, right? Like prior to BICRA, you have to play the game in order to get funded, but you also have to play the game in order to get booked, right? So you just have these three networks. You have the Sunday shows. Right. And, yeah. if the, and if the leader of your party, your chamber doesn't want you on a Sunday show, you're not getting are not going show. on, that's right. And, and so you either have to do really labor-intensive ideologically costly and politically costly efforts. Like, again, I mentioned Jesse Helms earlier, but also Ron Paul and his newsletters. Yeah, I was just going to say, like,
0: like that would be the alternative, would be like Ron Paul and his newsletters would be the alternative.
1: And, and you just, you, you raise small dollars. You know, a guy named Richard Vigory who's still alive, uh, sort of yeah. innovates this small dollar campaign finance through the mail. Uh, you know, he, he looks at the, what Phyllis Schlafly does with Eagle Forum and some other things. And he, you know, I think he even actually works in helping Phyllis set up that network. And, and he says, look, like we can, you know, Jesse Helms can can be the guy, but he's the guy in the Senate. That's it, right? He's the one who can fund himself and, and not get help from the NRSC. You can't have multiple Jesse's Helms, right? Like, um, likewise, there aren't multiple Ron Paul." Uh, figures right. in the House. There is a Ron Paul. And so, right. so you wind up with, yeah, pretty much everybody's going along, get along. Now, BICRA imposes this really interesting cost, which is it's not just that they have contribution caps to individual candidates. They also have aggregate contribution caps, which means that every member of Congress is competing with every other member of Congress for contributions from individuals. impacts. And packs. Well, packs. Packs have more flexibility. They're not. They as- do, but yeah, but, but they're yeah. still limited. Yeah. And and so what it means is that instead of, you know, look, Jay and I are, are are members of Congress, and and Sarah's our our um you know party leader in the House. You know, before we might both help Sarah raise money, and she would give us money, and if Jay's in a more costly district than I am, or more swing district, you know, she's going to give Jay more money, but she'll give me some because I'm a good soldier. Maybe I'll get a nice, a a nice chit or, or committee assignment. All of a sudden now, Sarah, Jay, and I all have to raise our own money. Sarah has the NRCC or whatever, the, the, the the party committee to help her. But Jay and I are like, I'm not helping Jay out because I, you know, every dollar that Jay gets is a dollar that's not in the marketplace for me to get. Um, and that, that rule actually holds through 2014, I think. Um, so from 2000, so it, it lasts for a decade. And this shifts the institutional logic and the political logic for individual members of Congress away from institutional pluralism, like I said, to individual pluralism. Yeah. Because, and
0: it's it, 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 it's yep. facilitated as well by, I mean, what you know, when you know the soft money spigot gets turned off. Um and the Supreme Court allows for individual individual independent expenditures. This is, you know, this is the alternative source of money now. Independent expenditures are, are going to be a major source of alternative funds. And and that's going to come from because it's not being managed by the party. But rather, frankly, being directed by the donors themselves, because the donors can give to a super PAC aligned with one candidate. They could do something like that. They could give a super they could give money to, you know, the party super PAC, you know, which is, you know, like Mitch McConnell's super PAC or Chuck Schumer's super PAC. Or they can give to ideological super PACs, um, you know, like. um, Oh, what's the conservative tax reform? A club for growth. Right. And and, and so what happens in many, there's a couple of things that go along with this, but, but what happens is it, it forces candidates to depend increasingly on these large donors who have whatever preferences they happen to have that may or may not be lined up with the kind of establishment like, you know, you know, get along with each other yeah the the flips the additional aspect and sort of luke hinted at this with you know the the ron paul model is that especially i think the first major person i remember who did this and there might be somebody before it but really howard dean no that's not true it was i think in many respects it was sort of like ralph nader all the way back in 2000 this even before bickra ralph nader demonstrated The ability of an unbridled kind of uncompromising liberalism, the kind of effect that could have on a passionate, albeit small minority of the population. And it was Howard Dean in 2008, I think, who figured out, or excuse me, in 2004, who figured out he could monetize that. And Obama figured out he could monetize it to an even greater extent. Well, so- so yeah, so Howard
1: mm-hmm. Dean in 04 is the first one to use the internet to do it, right? So that that's Dean's innovation. So from the 1980s through the early 2000s, Democrats are really frustrated that you have this highly networked you know, um, Republican small dollar machine that's, that, that social conservatives and evangelical Christians can draw on, right, that I mentioned before with Helms and, and Eagle Forum and all that. And there are a lot of competing entities. And and the RNC itself gets into the small, the direct mail business and has a really, really highly effective direct mail program, right, much richer than the DNCs. By contrast, in 2004, even through the general election, uh, you know, the the Democratic super PACs are, are raising what, by the standards of the day, are eye-popping amounts of money, right? MoveOn.org raises like $24 million from major donors and people think it's the end of democracy, right? It's sort of (laughs) um, in a presidential election. And, and, you know, they're crushing it with super PACs. Whereas because you have an incumbent president and they want things to run mostly through the president's campaign, the Republicans don't really get into the super PAC business, but they still have their small donors. And it's, it's Dean who sort of cracks the secret to building a a liberal small dollar donor base. So so this technology of like small dollar donors goes back and forth, right? Like right now, Republicans are sort of cruising. They're doing really well with it. Um, You know, President Trump is a big earner among Republicans with small dollars. Obama was a giant, um, you know, they were leaving the GOP in the dust in 2008, 2010 and on um, Democrats have established a sort of institutional advantage in truly outside and dark money through foundations and 501c4s and things like that, which we'll leave that aside. But um, but yes, uh, so yeah, what Jay's getting at is individual members realize that they, can, or, it, you know, presidential candidates realize that they can get a lot of attention by doing this. Howard Dean with the, with the 2004 campaign shows the power of the internet. Ron Paul then embraces this and, you know, creates what's called the money bomb. And he raises like a million dollars in an hour, which no one's ever heard of before. And it's, Look, even today, a pretty impressive amount of money by, by all means. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting moment where you have, um, where you have this, this like um, individual members are looking for opportunities to engage in campaign finance innovation. And at the same time, like they're able to dig their own carrots, so to speak, the Mm -hmm. stick, the stick that the party leaders used to have both in the, in the form of taking away soft dollars is gone, but also they can't deny them access to television anymore. Right. um, Because television doesn't matter as much anymore. Right. Because you Either. Both, Right, because on the because, one hand, you have C-SPAN, right? So yeah. people will show well, off. Yeah. They'll do stunts in, in, in committee hearings and all this other dumb stuff, right? So there's that's yep. one. They have C-SPAN. You also have cable. Cable is proliferating. And of course, yep. the internet is proliferating.
0: Now the internet.
1: And, yeah. And, and, and so, so I- to, Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I
0: was just going to say, so I, I think, like I said, you know, this is, there are large ideological trends happening within the two parties. I don't really think the Republicans move that far left on fiscal issues. I think the Republicans are still, especially as their voters have gotten older and have become more dependent on you know, social welfare, namely Medicare and Social Security. I don't think it's a coincidence that you know trump specifically campaigned on not touching them so the republicans i think if anything on social welfare have moved left but on the matter of taxation they've they're as conservative as they were and i think on social welfare and taxation the democrats have moved left and the republicans have moved left on or republicans have moved right on cultural issues so all these things the net result of this is that you have a Democratic coalition that is very distinct from the Republican coalition, and they are growing more distinct. But I, I think that the reason all of this talk about campaign finance is so important in understanding Congress is that the number of members in the institution in either chamber who are interested actively in compromising and making deals. And like, as Luke suggested during the Mexican debt crisis, actually governing the number of people who are, who have incentives to do that is decreasing because their campaign finance is almost like wildcat drilling or like, like imagine, you know, in like the 1880s in like, Western Dakota, which is an illegal settlement. And you just go out there and get what you can get. And it's yours. And there's like no law to it. It's there's a lot to be said for that kind of incentive structure existing now within members members of Congress and raising funds and actually being the guy who sits around and does the hard drudgery of government is ironically not going to help you get reelected because it's not going to get you your campaign funds that you need. It might actually, you might actually create enemies among, you know, groups that are ideologically to your left, if you're a Democrat or to your right, if you're Republican, and you could get picked off in a primary, which we've seen happen multiple times. And so I think a lot, this helps explain a lot of the phenomenon that we've seen in recent years, which is regular brinksmanship. Okay, it was a big story back in 1995 when the government shut down. It was a big story. It was a big deal. Now it's like almost like every year we have divided governments. Uh, you know, the government's not going to shut down this year or probably not next year. But if the Republicans take control of one chamber of Congress in 2023, then if the government doesn't shut down for a little while, they're going to push it right to the very edge. You see a similar kind of brinksmanship with regard to the debt ceiling. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Republicans, there's just not that many votes on the Republican side to give to, you know, in any kind of a debt ceiling type of deal. And so you've seen that happen multiple times. You've also seen the breakdown in the appropriations process, which we talked about at length. One of the challenges with the appropriations process is that in the Senate, appropriations bills are filibusterable. And so what you get is a scenario in which you know people threaten to filibuster the defense appropriations bill. Because that's their incentive structure now, if you combine their ideological sort of stridency with their financing sources and where they get their media attention and the general ecosystem in which they live, you know, 30 years ago during the Cold War, you'd have to be insane to threaten to filibuster the defense appropriations bill, but now it's de rigueur. And so what happens is, is that you get all of this spending mushed into these massive bills that pass at the very last minute, assuming they even do pass. And and again, a lot of it is because I would say the country has become more diverse ideologically. Yes, this is true. But the story that Luke and I have been telling about campaign finance, I think the end result is, is that the people who used to finance politics- The people who used to control the financing of politics were basically the establishment kind of centrist people who were looking to govern the parties, right? Now, however, the people who finance politics tend to be more ideologically activists and much more to either the left or the right of the country as a whole so the campaign finance structure has pulled the two parties into these separate camps not only that has made it them less willing to govern with each other and so you get a congress that is seems much more dysfunctional and in many respects is much more dysfunctional than it had been in just 20 years earlier and this is why in a previous episode luke and i have both argued that mccain feingold is i think in our opinion i don't know about you luke but i'm prepared to say it was the worst piece of legislation in the last 50 years in terms of domestic policy i'm hard pressed to think of something that has done more damage to the body politic and was so short-sighted in how that piece of legislation was constructed and how naive they were in thinking that they could just outlaw money and it would disappear or that they could write that bill and think that they could get it past the Rehnquist Court. The Rehnquist Court cut it to shreds, basically put campaign finance laws into a tatters, and basically turned it into maybe Swiss cheese. And like all the little holes over all the money flows through now where it used to be regulated and structured. And yeah, it was more than a little grubby and that absolutely needed to be cleaned up. But now, like I said, now it's like the Dakotas in like the 1880s, which is like, get whatever you can. There's no law. Whatever you can get
1: away with, God bless you. It's like Hobbes. It's a
0: Hobbesian nightmare in many respects.
1: Yeah, it is. And I mean, as someone who makes his living in this space, So I uh, I I run super PACs for a living, um, and I I would prefer that they not exist, or or at least they not play the role that they play in 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 politics today. Um,
0: well, can I just let me just yeah.
1: make one point about that, Luke? I've thought sure. about this
0: before. We've talked about this before, right? But Luke worked for, and I, I think our audience knows this. Luke worked for Jeb Bush's super PAC, right? 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 Right to Rise, which was Jeb Bush's super PAC, which was in California. The Jeb Bush campaign is in Florida, okay? Now, I, I want I want you in the audience to think about how stupid this entire arrangement is. And it's not stupid that Jeb's team and Luke specifically put, had this idea. It's that this was what the federal government between Bicra and the holes that the Supreme Court cut into it, forced them to do, right? So Jeb is in Florida, managing the actual campaign and then luke is working with mike murphy in california managing what by necessity has to be a shadow campaign how incredibly inefficient that is for 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 them to be operating two campaigns the one is not allowed to communicate with the other but not only that i luke knows this as well as anybody murphy at various points in time was forced to give interviews to sort of like communicate to the Jeb Bush campaign like we think you guys need to adjust your strategy because he couldn't pick up a phone and just, just call Jeb. He wasn't allowed to do it, right? right. And so yeah. he was forced to give interviews through The Economist, which just fed the narrative that that Jeb's campaign was not going very well. The whole thing is just beyond, even beyond the sort of the injection of radical, to be perfectly honest, radical dollars, right? Like radical people with radical views are injecting a boatload of money directly into politics now that 25 years ago they couldn't have been able to. Even beyond that, the inefficiencies bordering on stupidity of having a presidential candidate like Jeb Bush having to split his organization in two just to manage the campaign finance rules, the whole thing is just nonsense. No individual would come up with this idea. Now, this is a product of like McCain's and Feingold's naivete, McCain's desire to rewrite his legacy after uh, the Keating Five combined with the Supreme Court saying, that's not constitutional, that's not constitutional, that's not constitutional, this stuff remains. It's nonsense. Yeah, it, the, way, it has, the way to think more about more than it. anything else, it yeah. is absolutely there is not. If you are upset about the dysfunctionality of American politics today, and you want to finger one thing, and like you want to put the blame on one thing, put it on McCain Feingold because uh, there are a lot of reasons that politics has gone so you know screwy. But McCain Feingold is like the nexus point. Yeah,
1: I think that's right. Um, you know, the there are the collapse of television and the mainstream, the hegemony of the mainstream media was always going to create new openings for for ideological entrepreneurs to to get themselves in front of voters and create audiences. Personally, I think that's a really good thing. I I think the like 1990s Congress part of the reason McCain-Feingold became a thing was because it was so insular that there were there were adequate demand signals outside the mainstream of American politics, right? Like the Overton window, so to speak, had gotten too narrow, right? Because people talk about shifting the Overton window right or left, but it can also just be broadened. And I think that what had happened in the 90s was it had gotten very, very, very narrow. And it's much broader today. Um, and, and I'm open to that. I think it's a good thing. But the problem is, is that you will never effectively get Money out of politics. If you look at the Western and you know, before any of our listeners say, "Well, what about Western Europe? Don't they do it?" No, Western European political financing systems are mafia level corrupt operations. Um, You know, as as bad as American public campaign finance can be, it is compared to other parts of the world. Just you know, quaint in the lack of corruption. Um, There, there is not when you create the when you necessitate a black market in in political money, you will get a black market in political money. It's not as if it's not as if the stakes are simply too high, especially when the government is very large and the federal government is involved in all manner of different parts of, of the economy and, and and social life, et cetera. People are going to find a way. I mean, I I don't want to sound quite like Jeff Goldblum in in Jurassic park, but it's true. Like, like money, money finds a way. And so the challenge is to decide what responsible institutions will be the funnels for the money, right? And not to try to pretend like you can take it away. Now, naivete played a role in it, but I would also say, Jay, like cynicism should not be underestimated. I, I think both yeah, Feingold I, and McCain right. as, as individuals hated to be, they hated to answer to party bosses.
0: And I mm-hmm. understand that,
1: right? Like you, you get elected as an individual, um, yeah. even though, but, and then you find yourself in a legislature, which is a team sport. Yeah. People don't like that. Yeah. 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 Especially in the Senate
0: because they're peacocks.
1: Well, I think on that note, we'll, uh, we'll bring this
0: episode to a close and uh, we'll continue. We, we have lots more to say about Congress. This is sort of a mini series that we're working our way through. I think there's a lot of episodes. So if you're enjoying this good, there's more to come. And if you're not enjoying it, sorry, but Luke and I are enjoying ourselves.
1: So we're going to keep talking about Congress. So we will see um, you uh, next week. Go ahead. Yeah. Just one thing. So we're now we're up to the present age. Um, so we're going to switch over into the institutions of Congress um, moving forward, and we're just going to sort of walk people through. You know, if you're curious about the filibuster, if you're curious about right. committees, if you're curious about discharge positions, we're going right. to work through. If, if you want to know how the leadership offices fit together, we'll work through those and we'll help we'll help people understand that where they come from, their history, and how they operate. Right? I mean, because yeah. that, that's really the important thing. Is Congress is an abstraction, but it's a collection of 535 individuals and a handful of delegates and their staff and and whatnot and and they're the ways that it works. And so we're going to talk about, you know, kind of the the, the what's under the hood, so to speak, or under yeah. the dome, if you will.
0: Exactly. So join us next time and we will begin looking at the, uh, the different parts of the congressional machinery. We'll see you then.